We will be in chapter 3, kind of continuing a second part of a passage that we began last Lord's Day. 1 Peter chapter 3, let's start at verse 8. Follow along with me and I will read through verse 12 and that will be the section of our study today. 1 Peter 3, 8 through 12. To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for this very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. May God be blessed by the reading of his word. And in light of that blessing, we have entitled this study, Your Blessed Life Now. And of course, we are kind of um, in that title, exposing the fallacy of your best life now as believers in Jesus Christ. We understand the best is yet to come. Sure, we experience blessing now. We experience good things because the Christian's life is a life lived under grace. That is everything that God supplies through us, purely through his kindness and not works that we have done in righteousness. Our righteous works are merely the fruit, merely the demonstration that that work of grace has taken place and that the power of the gospel operates within us. We don't live our best life now, but we do live a blessed life now, knowing that the best is yet to come. And of course, we highlighted last Lord's Day the fact that This passage, especially verse 10, which is the focal point really of what is going on in this passage, should stand out as something that anyone would desire. Even an unbeliever would look at this and say, sure, I desire life. I, you know, love is a good thing. You know, all you need is love and see good days. Sure, we don't want our days to be full of of misery and discontent and trouble. We want good days. But we also said that when we approach this text, we understand it in a very unique way because when we look at things like life, when we look at things like love, and when we look at things like good days, we have to ask and say, well, what does that mean? How do we understand that? But we have an answer. We understand what is good, what is love, and what is life through the pages of Scripture. We have that starting point to guide our thinking. And of course, we will begin in verse 10 this morning. We went through... Uh, verse 8 and 9 last week, where Peter very plainly, very clearly gives sort of these, the expectation of certain character qualities that are to be emblematic of the Christian, especially in light of suffering, walking in submission to Christ, and all of these relationships that he's just mentioned, whether it be a slave in a household, whether it be before the government, or especially in marriage. We are called, as the Holy Spirit gives us the strength, to be these things. If you look at verse 8, he says, harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. We should put these on ready display for the good of one another, to the glory of God, and to watch and wait and see how the Holy Spirit presents himself as we live this way, and we see him strengthening the church. And then he gives a prohibition in verse 9. He says, do all these things, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead, for you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. So simply behave in proportion to what you stand to inherit. You're not cursed, so don't be accursed. Behave in such a way that is consistent with your destiny in Christ. If you are called to, to inherit a blessing, then be a blessing to others whether you are around unbelievers or whether you're around believers. In each case, one thing should be a common denominator. Be a blessing, okay? Be a vessel of grace toward those with whom you interact. So we come to the third part in verse 10. In terms of the blessed life, let's just call this the meditation of the blessed life. Why meditation? Because I want us to look at the scripture that Peter quotes here and think very deeply on it. Reflect upon it and let it Truths penetrate your heart and watch it influence the way, you, the way you think, the way you behave, all those things that are commensurate with 
a gospel-empowered life. And notice in verse 10, in this meditation upon this scripture, the first word that Peter uses is for. Okay, so he says for. Look back at what he just said. When he says for, what's the for there for? Okay, well, here's what it is is that Peter is bringing up Old Testament scripture as his authority and grounding for what he just said. Okay. So I'm just saying all these things to you, being harmonious, sympathetic, and so on, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, and so on. What is my authority for that? Well, here's what the scripture says. And keep in mind, Peter is writing this primarily to Gentile Christians, those without the law. Also some Jews sprinkled in. But as they come together in Christ, they find out that the Old Testament scriptures are still authoritative. Okay? They're still binding, especially as Peter draws from this text. So to get a little grounding, let's turn, keep your finger on 1 Peter chapter 3, but turn over to the middle of the Bible, book of Psalms. The passage that Peter is quoting from, is Psalm 34. And if you look at the heading, if you have an NASB, it says, The Lord, a provider and deliverer. A Psalm of David when he feigned madness before Abimelech who drove him away and he departed. So this is our grounding context, okay? But notice how David begins this. If you're, if you're turned there, Psalm 34, he says this, O taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed, there's the blessing, how blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints. Who's Peter talking to in his passage? He's talking to the saints, talking to God's people. For to those who fear him, there is no want. The, the young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Now listen to this, verse 11, because this is the attention grabber. David says this, come you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. And then he gets into this text, which Peter is quoting. Verse 12. Who is the man who desires life and loves length of days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Okay. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Now, verse 15, he closes. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. And in closing, he says, the righteous cry and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Now, if you take another quick look at verse 19 in Psalm 34, he says, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Now, this would especially relate to the Christians to whom Peter is writing in the first century. He's writing to believers who are starting to experience more severe persecution. Remember, it starts with marginalization. Right now, we are under the emperor Claudius, if we got our timeline right here. After the emperor Claudius, who expelled the Jews from, uh, from, the Jews from Rome, and then under him, these, these, these light and momentary persecutions began. Then after him comes Nero, who started killing Christians. Okay. So it's getting more and more severe. So that fact is not lost on Peter, that Christians, though they love God and serve him, understand that they are also called to suffer for him, even as they see the kingdom of God advancing through the proclamation of the gospel. So go ahead and return to 1 Peter chapter 3, now that we've understood the Old Testament grounding of this. So the meditation of the blessed life now, reflecting on this Old Testament scripture that Peter uses as his authority. Now, a couple things we want to keep in mind when we go through this text, okay? Now, these are mostly contextual issues, okay? We don't want to read, number one, we don't want to read this passage either in Psalm 34 or in 1 Peter chapter 3 and divorce it from all of Christ's accomplishments, okay? We want to read this passage in light of Christ's accomplishments because Peter is writing it in light of Christ's accomplishments, now, what is David writing about in, its, in, in his immediate context? Well, he is praising God for his deliverance from the dangers of the Philistines, right? God delivered him. He was afflicted, but God rescued him. Now, how is this understood in a greater sense in Christ's work, in his redemptive work? Well, it is simply this, 
that just as God is able to deliver King David from the dangers of the Philistines, now Peter is telling the believers in Christ that God is and will ultimately deliver them from those who reject Christ. That's what he's telling us. So that is how this little psalm written by David, addressing the fact that God has rescued him from the Philistines, now takes on a greater reality, right? A greater application to all those who name the name of Christ and suffer for his sake. So just as we've been saying all along in our study of 1 Peter, mind you, that we see these promises in the Old Testament initially, and they expand. They take on a greater reality and greater application now that Christ has come and has done his work. So we want to understand this in light of what Christ has done. Now look at the top part of this verse. Verse 10, he says, For the one who desires life to love and see good days. Okay. So most immediately, he is describing the believer in Christ. Even though we would say, yeah, this is pr pretty much common to everybody. He's talking to the one who believes in Christ. He's talking to God's people here. The one who desires life to love and see good days. So let's consider life just to demonstrate what this means through the work of Christ. How do we, how do we understand life? Because typically when we see it used in the Old Testament, we understand it in the context normally of this earthly life. Or if you want to apply it to the promised land, the Jews would understand life as life in the land, right? And under the Old Testament provision, if if the Jews continue to disobey God and act unjustly and worship idols, the Lord would expel them from the land. So they understood life in that context. Life was connected to the land. But as expanded in Christ, we understand life as referring to life holistically. Think about this in Christ. In Him, John says, was the life, and that life was the light of men. That's in John chapter 1. This is what I'm saying. We understand each of these things in the light of the person of Christ and his person and work. Okay? We never divorce life, love, and good days from what Christ is doing in his church right now. So all these things are expanded in him. What does Jesus say of himself? I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of Life. If we are to understand life, especially in the midst of suffering, we must look to Christ and the life that he gives. What life does he give? Resurrection life. Now keep this in mind, especially as we are approaching Resurrection Sunday, to celebrate that awesome moment in history where Christ conquered death. So we not only have life in terms of this temporal life, we have eternal life, we have death conquering life. Life that raises one from the dead. So all who are in Christ experience this death-conquering resurrection life. How about love? Okay, What do we know about the relationship between Jesus Christ and love? How about a verse from 1 John? In this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation simply means appeasement or satisfaction. What is it that Jesus Christ satisfied on the cross? He satisfied the justice and wrath of God toward unrepentant sinners. That's what he did. So we recognize love today through the work of Christ and his sacrificial love on the cross, that he gave himself up for us and satisfied the justice of God in our place on our behalf. We all live in that reality because of what Christ has done. Okay. Now, let's see this in the context of good days. Look at verse 10 again. And see good days. Now, think about this. Once again, context is important. How does a believer or how does a group of believers understand what constitutes good days, especially if they're being persecuted? How does, a, how does the church in China understand good days. Any, take any persecuted body of believers anywhere in the world. They can look at this and with full confidence say, yes, this is true. Even though they endure suffering, public shame, and loss for their faith in Christ. In what sense do we see good days? 
Well, we see good days in the sense in that these are, in which we live as believers, times of refreshing because of what Christ has done. These officially are the times of refreshing that Christ has brought on his people. We are refreshed by the good news of the gospel. We are refreshed by truth. We are refreshed constantly by the presence of God amongst us. And I think we experience these good days in both a temporal and eternal fashion. Good days, just to mark this down, covers the entire scope of the Christian life. Here's, here, here's, here's how we experience this now. If we could really kind of say this very succinctly. Right now we experience good days in the sense of our present fellowship. Who do we have fellowship with? Well, one, we have fellowship with God in Christ. Christ our mediator, right? We have fellowship with one another because Christ brings that fellowship to us. But in another sense, these good days look forward. They look forward because of our new birth in Christ. Remember, we have resurrection life. And what Christ accomplished on the cross began what could be called the latter days. The whole eschaton, what we know is eschatology, the study of the last days, have continued from Christ's resurrection, death, death, resurrection, ascension, all the way up to today. We are still experiencing these days. And we can say very truly that these are good days. They're good days in which we experience the blessings of God in Christ. And, and now we experience the new birth, and what that new birth does is look forward to Christ reconciling all things to himself and eventually consummating his redemptive work. Okay? That's the work that his gospel is doing now. As the Holy Spirit goes forth and regenerates, it's a present reality, but we would say those are good things. What a terrible world it would be if we were all irretrievably cut off from God. But we can see that these are good days because of the redemptive work that Christ continues to do. And all of this results personally in our eternal inheritance, right? We, the, the Christian stands to receive the blessings that Christ will bring in total when he returns. Our ultimate inheritance is Christ himself. That's what we await, okay? And we would say, yes, in spite of persecution, those are good days. We live in good days right now. And that's why I keep harping on up here Sunday after Sunday, why we should be excited, why we should, why we should anticipate good things to come and the fact that good things are going on right now. Okay. So that's the first thing, okay? First thing in this line. We're going to kind of labor over this a little bit, but we want to see that top part of the verse in the context of Christ's accomplishments in our life in Him now. And here's another thing we've alluded to, but we'll say it very briefly, is that the blessed life is to be understood in spite of persecution, okay? All Christians throughout all time have experienced some level of trouble, some level of rejection, some level, whether light or severe or momentary or extended or prolonged, affliction, persecution. We get that. It's a reality. But we do not call into question the presence of life, love, and good days based on the work of Christ, because of those persecution. In fact, it can be well documented that where persecution is, the church explodes. The gospel goes forth in power. People are redeemed. They believe. And the church is a public witness of that. Here's another one, and this is very important in keeping with the text ahead of verse 10, okay, verses 11 and 12 is that the blessed life is a transformed life. Now, what Peter is going to say, he says, the one who desires life to love and see good days says this. He says, must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good, seek peace and pursue it. So we see all of those things. These are imperatives, right? These are commands that Peter is issuing. He is saying these things must be true of the person who desires these things, Okay. And what we can get confused about is this is somehow works righteousness. Remember, the commands of God are not legalistic. The commands of God are meant to be put on, are meant to be obeyed by believers as an expression of the inward work of grace and the transforming power of the gospel. Listen to what Karen Job says. She call, according to her, this text calls us not to a legalistic and begrudging compliance 
but to a confidence in the transforming power of the new birth, which allows Christians in all sincerity to speak and act toward adversaries from a heart that truly desires their blessedness. And you can re- you got to remember the heart of Peter here. He's not saying, forget these unbelievers, forget these Roman pagans. No, he wants us to conduct ourselves righteously so that the gospel can continue to do its work through us, right? To set an example of humble, righteous behavior, even in the midst of affliction, not returning evil for evil or insult or insult. And that's only going to happen if your life and heart have been transformed. I mean, remember, Christianity, I think, is the only religion which actually commands us to love our enemies. And if we don't love our enemies, then it calls our faith into question. Loving our enemies is not an option, okay? So we live in such a way so that we can not only build one another up, but that we can, release, we can reach the unbeliever. We desire their salvation. We, re, we desire them to be reconciled to God in Christ. But also with that, we warn the unbeliever that if they continue in their rebellion, judgment and condemnation eternally await them. But we are not in the meantime to live like them. We are not to return evil for evil, insult for insult. Remember in verse 9, but to give a blessing instead. That's totally countercultural. That actually does not make sense, even to the unbeliever. That, they will seriously question your sanity if you do not do what is expected. And that is return evil for evil. It is a characteristic of unbelieving society to do that, and often to do that without even thinking about it. Remember what Peter says earlier in this, in this passage, in this chapter. He calls us fellow heirs of the grace of life, speaking of how the husband is to treat his wife. Fellow heirs, we inherit all that God has to give us according to his grace, right? And of course, knowing that we are that, these commands that Peter gives us come to those who have a life that is meant to be dominated by grace. We want to be dominated by grace, not forced compliance. These are things that as the Spirit indwells us and gives us the strength and wisdom to apply these things. I don't want to say, we're not on autopilot as it were, but when we hear these commands, guys, we should delight in them. We should want more. We should desire to obey them, right? That is the, that is the nature of a transformed heart, and that's its characteristic response. So he says this, look at the text again. Must, there's both urgency and obligation in this statement. Even before getting in the details of this text, We must recognize and emphasize the point that these things are not optional. These are not take it or leave it principles for lukewarm Christians. These are commands for people who love the Lord Jesus and have a heart for the church as well as for the unbeliever. And when you think about it, these things have never been optional for anybody. These things are even binding on the unbeliever because this is God's holy standard and we're all called to obey it willingly and joyfully. The issue is this, is that only God's people can do these things. So, of course, this text comes with a very serious and very clear accountability. We cannot say, oh, I'm not under the law. This is Old Testament, and therefore, treat this as something optional. No, this this is still authoritative, and it is amplified and made even all the more clear through the work of Christ. So let's respond to it with all the grace and humility necessary and see it bear fruit. See, we have a God-given responsibility as God's new covenant people to pursue righteousness with all the grace that God endows upon us. And of course, we can't look at that and say, well, I have all this grace, therefore I'm not going to live any differently from how the world lives. It's completely inconsistent. You know, it's even though we understand that once the Lord regenerates us, He's not going to unregenerate us. Christ can't die. Christ isn't going to undie for you, right? These things are very clear and they're very true. But as secure as salvation is in Christ, there are warnings. There are warnings all over the place in the New Testament against falling away, against having an unbelieving heart, against being lukewarm, right? Or dead or compromising. We don't want to fall into those things as a church. And so we listen to these warnings and we see the good in them, that God desires his best for us. And that is totally consistent with a blessed life. So let's look at these specifically. Counted six overall, six individual instructions. But the one who desires life to love and to see good days first must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. So that basically centers on what we say. We know that most of us at one time or another, may have happened yesterday, may have happened this morning, especially if you have kids, you got in trouble 
because of something you said, because you lack self-control to hold your tongue or say something gracious instead said or say something edifying. No, you ran your mouth and you didn't keep your tongue from evil. I think Peter lists this first because this often is the most challenging one. Sometimes we excuse ourselves based on the things we say. Well, I didn't really do anything. I just said this. Said, made this off-color statement, made this unkind statement. Doesn't matter. They didn't hear it. Okay. Peter says, no, no. Regardless of who's listening, keep your tongue from evil, your lips for, from speaking deceit. So here is a, a double command, a double warning based on what we say. Goes first to words, because words, of course, are very revealing of your character. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth what? Speaks. You want to know what's in someone's heart? Let them talk. Let them speak freely, and that mystery will be solved in short order. It's very important that we keep our tongue from evil and our lips from deceit. Take Scripture's warning seriously. One thing that Scripture is abundantly clear on is the challenge of what man says. In some cases, it seems like it's a lost cause, that man has no control over what he says. Even James says, no one can tame the tongue. No one can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil, full of deadly poison, full of bitterness, full of crassness, full of lies, even. The speech can be used for a variety of evils. And I think the fact that Peter simply says, keep your tongue from evil, that basically covers the gamut of what we understand to be what is unrighteous speech, right? Keep yourself from these things. And I think this, of course, is warned about in many places. James 3.6 says this, the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity, the tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. No other part of the human anatomy is described as such, as being so out of control, as being so potentially dangerous. Listen to what Roy Williams said of this. Words start wars and end them. Create love and choke it. Bring us together or bring us to laughter and joy and tears. Words cause men and women to willingly risk their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor. Our world, as we know it, revolves on the power of words. He isn't kidding. And without the power of the Holy Spirit, though we try to control it as time goes by, what we do is further demonstrate the tongue's power over us not our discipline and power over it. Now, what makes this so potentially dangerous too is consider, consider our present cultural conduct or context. We live in a society where people are very easily offended. Do we not? Sometimes we think, man, what, what can I say anything to this person that will please them, that will be innocuous enough so as to not light them up and get angry? It's a very common challenge today. People are very easily offended. It was, uh, what was Vodi Bakum, I believe, who said, remember the 11th commandment, right? Thou shalt always be nice. Well, there's a 12th commandment that I'm adding to that. Thou shalt not offend. That is, that is a sacred imperative in unbelieving society. Don't offend. Don't hurt feelings. Whatever you do, don't offend the person. That is the sacred 12th commandment. And of course, this issue of keeping the tongue from evil has a variety of challenges. Even Peter's talked about it, insult for insult, right? Reviling in return. And of course, when we do that, it demonstrates a lack of trust in the justice of God. Lord says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, leave it to me. Do not take matters into your own hands. But how does evil speaking manifest itself in a variety of ways? And, and so many of these actually um, and can entrap the church, right? We got to be aware of each of these. But think about this. Evil speaking, tongue from evil. Gossip, that's a big one. A big one in the church. Just talking about someone with ill intent. 
and not, and not, not out of genuine concern for their spiritual well-being. Being a tail bearer, a talker. Another one is slander, simply lying about someone, misrepresenting them or exaggerating. Blasphemy, right? Misrepresenting God, okay? impugning his character. Another way we see this is unkind words, simply what we call cheap shots that are meant to tear down and discourage. Often those, words are, those kinds of words are used in the form of revenge. Someone says something unkind to us, well, we just get right back at them, right? Which is what Peter is forbidding here. And this, guys, this is more than not returning evil for evil or uh, keeping ourselves from evil speech is more than simply taking the high road. It's much more than that. When we refrain from doing these things, we express a trust in God, in his character, that he will make things right. We humble ourselves before him and walk with him and not seek revenge. When it comes to the church, here's another one. In the church, it manifests itself, I believe, mostly in the form of speaking about one another in a non-redemptive way. See, there are things worse than gossip. When we speak of one another in a non-redemptive way, it is in a fashion in which we criticize one another without any recognition of the Holy Spirit's work of grace. And this is all too easy. You know, we find something we don't like about a person, a habit they have, something they did, something they, they said, a way they, a way they offended us. And sometimes we just, there's a snowball effect that we cannot do anything but speak ill of them. And then we find out that in spite of the fact that this is my brother or sister in Christ, I'm a part of Christ's body with them, and I am called to love and serve them, we have basically rejected any presence of the Holy Spirit's work in their life. We, I mean, isn't it, isn't it sad that, the, that this happens in the church? Those who call themselves God's people, and then we write people off. We're dismissive of them. We think of them as a hopeless case. And to that I say, look, man, if God could save you, he could save anybody. That's how we should think of ourselves. God can save me. If God can do a work of grace in me, if God can make me like Jesus, then surely he can do it for this brother that I'm offended by. Right? That should be the state of our heart. A humble attitude toward our brother to not speak ill of them. And this is, this is the one, the one who claims this life, love, and these good days in Christ. You claim that for yourself. This must be true of you. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from deceit. There's more. This evil speaking happens also, and I would say this is the most important part of the matter we need to repent from, is we speak evil whenever we misrepresent God. Whenever we say things that are untrue about him, you know, we speak evil when we lie. We speak evil when we curse and complain and accuse God of wrongdoing, right? So what's, the, what's our recourse? We're not just going to get up here and say, hey, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Scripture gives us positive commands. Listen to Ephesians 4.29. Let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth. But if there is any good word for edification according to the need of the moment. See how specific Paul is? According to the need of the moment. See, this requires wisdom. There are some things that are generally edifying, but Paul is talking here about things that are specifically edifying. And you're not going to know what's specifically edifying if you're always talking trash about your brother. If you are listening, though, and you are wise to the needs of the moment, Paul says, say that so that it will give what? Grace to those who hear. Give grace to those who hear. And typically, man, someone's always listening. Sometimes we run our mouths unaware of who's paying attention, unaware of who's watching our words. And ask yourself, is what I'm saying gracious? Does what I, is what I am saying reflect a redemptive view toward my brother? And is what I say meant to edify and build up? Or is, it, or is it a cheap shot meant to tear down? Ask yourself that question. Is what you say needed? Is what you say wise to the moment? Okay. Then he gives a second one here. That's just evil speaking. But, but then he says from speaking deceit. Now that would definitely fall under the umbrella of evil speaking, but Peter gets specific here. This is the third time in this letter so far that Peter has used the words deceit, and it's a very picturesque word. Speaks of a hook that is meant to catch an unsuspecting fish and drag it in. 
And in this case, of course, it's speaking deceit is meant to get that person hooked on clever words that we may say, clever deceptive words, and then reel it in very slowly with a jerk here now. But what is, it, what, is, what is speaking deceitfully meant to do? It's meant to bend a person to your will. And in fact, it's actually meant to make a person your personal slave, which is completely contrary to the work of the gospel because Peter just got done saying, live as free men, right? You're free. Live that way. And don't make your freedom a covering for evil. No, make it a platform for doing that which is good and helpful and gracious. See, we do not speak deceitfully. It's time the church stopped doing so. To not mislead, to not sugarcoat, to not affirm what we know to be untrue. Listen to what the Lord tells the Israelites. Leviticus 19.11 You shall not steal, nor deal falsely, nor lie to one another. We are to be people who speak the truth. That's one of the primary characteristics of God's people. We tell the truth. We don't flatter, we don't sugarcoat, we don't mislead. We don't dilute. We speak the truth. Listen to this, Psalm 25, 12. And already it's become an issue in Israel. They speak falsehood to one another with flattering lips and with a double heart they speak. God's people are to have one heart. One heart regenerated upon which the law and commandments of God are written so that we may walk in them and do His will and live in grace. One heart and lips that speak the truth. Paul doubles down on this. Ephesians 4.25, Therefore, ridding yourselves of falsehood, first get rid of that. That's imagery common to Paul, right? Take off the old clothes or take off the old man and then put on the new man. Okay, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. So you rid yourself of falsehood, he says. And then he says, Speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, because we are parts of one another. Okay. Who is your neighbor? Everyone in here. We are one another's neighbor. So speak truthfully to one another because we are a part of one another. In other words, stop hitting yourself. You lie to one another, it's like you're slapping your own face. It's like you're stubbing your own toe. You're cutting off your own finger. You're gouging out your own eye. That is the destructive power of lies. Speak truth to one another and build one another up. The truth, friends, is our greatest commitment. We're committed to God's view of things. How does God see the world? How does Jesus see reality? Well, we want to see it the same way, and we explain it as such. There's no room in Christian speech for half-truths, deceit, or flattery. We clearly speak the truth, we speak it honestly, and we speak it completely, and we speak it in love. Now, love doesn't mean we speak the truth nicely. It means we speak, speaking the truth in love means we speak the truth in such a way where we are pursuing God's highest good for another. And yes, sometimes that can be in a, in a very stern and intense manner. Remember, if your brother is running headlong toward a cliff, if you say, hey, dude, um, hate to impose upon your free will, but maybe you shouldn't do that. No, you run after him and you yell, don't jump off that cliff or you're going to die and you get in his way and you're like, you're going to have to climb over me to jump off that cliff. See, that's speaking the truth in love. Now, I know it doesn't sound nice, but it is loving. Okay. Rest my case on that. <laughs> we speak the truth and nothing but the truth. Okay, what else? Well, we must also turn from evil. So there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a negative command and a positive command. Again, the Christian life isn't about not doing things. It's not just about repentance. It's also about doing righteously, about doing that which is good. And so he says here, not only stop your tongue from evil, but even your very body, the things we do with our members, the evil that we commit. I mean, use your imagination, not too much, but use your imagination. There are a variety of pitfalls which we, with which we use our body to commit evil and ungodliness. He says, turn away from that. That is the spirit-empowered commitment of the Christian life, not legalism. It's uncharacteristic of the Christian to continue to live in a lifestyle of ungodliness. So he says, yeah, 
if, if you claim this, life, love, good days, turn away from evil. Turn away from evil. Huge deal with the Christian. Having been granted repentance, we turn from evil. I mean, think about this. The one who professes Christ, can that person continue to live a life of sin, a life enslaved to evil, and, and still expect to end up in glory? No. And we're not trying to undo the work of grace, but we're saying that grace will have a work. It will cause a significant change in the life of the one who is truly in Christ. To enjoy these good days, one must turn away from evil. It's not an, it's not an option. We're not advocating works righteousness. We're not, we're not advocating personal merit before God. But what we are doing is we are proclaiming the power of God revealed from faith to faith. That's something that Paul explains in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Remember, he says, the righteous, for in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, which means that the gospel will demonstrate its power through the deepening of a man's faith, right? His trust will grow. His commitment to righteousness will grow. His faith in Christ will deepen and mature and bear the fruit of righteousness. We are saying that the gospel's power is so potent that when truly believed, God grants a change of life. Not only new life in Christ, but in a very day-to-day function, right? Functionally. In a sanctifying way, we will turn from evil and, he says, do what is good. Okay, Very sharp distinction. You notice there's no middle way here. Turn from evil, do what is good. Not do what is pretty good or do what is culturally acceptable or do what sounds all right. No, do that which is good. I love taking you guys back to uh, Exodus chapter 34. Remember when the Lord says his goodness will pass before Moses? And then what does Moses see? When, he, when, when the goodness of God passes by, we see this, this indescribable radiance of God's presence. So when you think of good, draw your mind to that the radiant presence of all of God's qualities and character, right? Not good as in gooder, like I am better than you, or I'm not as bad as that person. Forget that garbage. Think of the presence of God's glory, so bright, so powerful, that it, that it begs description. This virtue of divine moral excellence That's what we understand is good. And that is what we are called to do. So simply do good means do everything which is consistent with God's radiant revealed character. If you want want to know what good is, open your Bible and see what is described of God and see what God does. And then as the Holy Spirit empowers you, go and do likewise but we will never understand the good apart from the Holy Scriptures. We can't understand good from any other source except God's Word. Other than that, it's all left to chance. It's, as we, as we described, that all, all that's there is my truth, right? My truth, living my life. Who can say otherwise? But we're saying, no, there is no one good but God alone, and we cannot understand good but by God's Word alone. Another way of understanding that is doing what is good in the Christian life is pursuing that which results in the fruit of the Spirit. Okay, what is the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You want to pursue the good? Pursue those things with great care and yet with great purpose. Here's another thing. Look at the text again. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. All right. So not only good, but we also have peace. As we've already underscored in other sermons, peace is a big deal today. We all want peace. We don't like this this ongoing ruckus that we're witnessing, this 
uproar, <laughs> the raging of the nations. We want peace. So what is, he, what is he telling us to do here? Remember, peace we understand in a variety of ways, right? One, peace we understand it as the fact that the war between you and God is over. The very war that you were waging against God has been put away. Why? Because you have been reconciled by Christ's blood to God. You are no longer fighting God. You are no longer rebelling him. And much to our great relief, God is no longer fighting you. Okay, that's the big deal. Secondly, we understand peace is that inner sense of tranquility, right? Basically, that, that settled knowledge that you are right with God. Okay? There, there is an emotional factor in that. Inner tranquility. And of course, thirdly, we talk about peace as being shalom, wholeness. Basically, we understand peace as, as the fact that things are as they should be. Life is as it should be. You go back to verse 10, how do we understand shalom? Good days. You want to talk about peace? Good days. That's how we understand it. We are seeking that. Again, it's more than a ceasefire. It's more than simply trying to be diplomatic and tiptoeing on broken glass because we're afraid of rubbing the person the wrong way. How do we understand peace? What is it that the Christian does to pursue peace, right? Think of the armor of God, having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. To pursue peace, to seek peace and then pursue it is a commitment to preaching the reconciling work of Jesus Christ. Okay. Because every time a person comes to Christ in repentance and faith, the world gets that much more shalomi, right? The world gets that much more peaceful. And that's what we're doing when we proclaim Christ. We are proclaiming peace to the nations. We are telling the world to stop rebelling and to come to Christ and to experience life, good days, the way they were meant to be experienced, right? And, and no one will experience or understand that shalom without Christ because Christ, we have in the flesh, the way things are meant to be. We see that in his life. That's, we look at Christ, yep, that's how it's meant to be. Right there, right there. We understand peace in Christ and in Christ alone. We pursue it. And I think, again, it bears, it bears repeating that when it comes to the life of the church, we have a very unique opportunity to pursue peace with one another. Why? Because we do so with the foundation of being at peace with God. We have the same, we're pursuing the same goal when we pursue peace with one another, and that is that Christ is honored and that he does his work of peace in the lives of his people. Very simple concept there. But this is a lifelong pursuit of the Christian. We seek it, we look for it, and then we give chase. But we must identify it in Christ first before we are able to pursue it. Otherwise, we are attempting to pursue a peace that is not of Christ, right? It begins with him and it ends with him. Okay. And this peace, of course, is manifested in a variety of ways. And I think chief among them is forgiveness, especially in the life of the church. When it comes to the unbeliever, that peace is achieved when they come to Christ. But in, in the life of the church, it's when the church is able to overlook an offense, but also to be able to forgive those offenses. Okay. To say that the blood of Christ paid for this sin, right? Therefore, I am not going to put myself above the blood of Christ. So I will show forgiveness. That is how peace is pursued in the body of Christ. Forgive as Christ forgave you. And you think about this. How is one who desires all these things, how does one live, love, and see good deeds if his life is a constant hurricane of chaos and unforgiveness, right? You need shalom. You need peace for life, love, and good days to prevail, to be characteristic of your life. Peace must be continually pursued. Even as we are instructed in Scripture, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. And yes, you will find some who don't want peace. You will find some who, want, who, are, who are pretty unforgiving and cantankerous even within the church. What are we still called to do? Pursue peace insofar as we are able to have peace with that individual. And so honor God by putting his peace on display. So let's move on in this text. I think you guys get the point. Verse 12, For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, 
and his ears attend to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Once again, from Psalm chapter 34, the eyes of the Lord are, are toward the righteous. So those, this gives us a great motivation, guys, that those who, those who want to live righteously, to pursue peace, to turn from evil, to speak what is good, to do what is good, all those things, right? We understand that we do that before God and that his favor rests upon us. I think we can understand it in its present context in this way. Look at this. It says, for the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. Why? Not because we're good, not because we're better than everyone else, but because like Noah did, we have found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And simply the righteous here are those who place their faith in Christ and who walk in the power of the Spirit. We, we, we are righteous in Christ and that we are justified, but also we are doing that which is righteous. And guess what? The eyes of the Lord are toward them. He sees it even in the midst of suffering. The Lord understands our predicament. He understands our position before him. And we understand that he is for us and not against us. And how do we know this? How do we know this? Well, the verse says this and his ears attend to their prayer. So that's, the, that's basically the proof that God's eyes are toward us. Okay? It's not that he's just watching us. When his eyes are toward us in this sense, it means that he is attentive, that his grace prevails in our lives, right? His mercy prevails in our hearts. The eyes of God see everything. It speaks of his omnipotence and his omnipresence. He has all power. He sees everything. Nothing escapes his notice or his grasp. In Proverbs 5.21, we read this. For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. Proverbs 15.3 says this, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, watching the evil and the good. So there is no escape. <laughs> Nothing escapes his piercing holy gaze. And yet we find that before that piercing holy gaze, we find immense grace and favor as we are his righteous. And we find that his ears attend to our prayer. And what a consolation that is, especially in the midst of suffering, that we can go to God. We are his righteous ones. We are his holy ones. So we can go then boldly to the throne of grace to get help in time of need, knowing that God attends to our prayers. He doesn't just listen. When it says that he attends to us, it means that he responds in a way in which he meets our needs. And I would dare say that sometimes he meets those needs in the most unexpected and unanticipated ways. But this is a promise. This is a truth that we can latch on tightly to. Is that as we pursue these things, we understand that within the purview of this, that God is watching us. He knows all of our thoughts and our words and our deeds we are his righteous ones and that he listens to us. That we can go forth to him in great faith and in great comfort with the understanding that he listens and he answers. He hears us. So pray boldly, pray humbly, pray faithfully and pray confidently aware that God's watchful provision will preserve us in a world that is hostile toward the gospel. It is this very thing, this very comfort we find that gives us the strength to keep us from retaliating, to keep us from speaking evil against our neighbor, to keep us from seeking vengeance, to keep, that keeps us from a faithless heart and defends us from a bitter spirit. He is the one who will help us love our enemies and do that which is good for his people, the church. These are all the things, friends, that we should be praying for. Pray that these things will be that which excels in your life, that you are preoccupied with, so that we can give God honor and demonstrate very clearly that the power of the gospel is at work in our hearts and that we can trust Him for all of these things. These things are never to be pursued or applied apart from God's enablement, right? We do these things not to be worthy, but because we are worthy. Not to be righteous, but because we are righteous in Him. Now, in all of this, keep in mind, there is a warning. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. That's great. He sees us. And His ears, right? Eyes, ears, attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. It's amazing. You read the Old Testament, there's various episodes that when people are face to face with God, what's, the first, what's their first reaction? They're terrified, right? 
Oh man, I have seen God. I have seen him face to face. Woe is I, I shall die. And then of course, we usually have that <laughs> reproof from the Lord. Relax, you're not going to die. I mean, you're not dead yet. <laughs> you know, it's God's mercy at work. But it does say this. See, see, the righteous do not have to fear in that sense when they come face to face with God. In fact, God's presence dwells among us. We fear him, but we fear him in the context of mercy, right? But those who are ungodly, those who do evil, have nothing but terror, the expectation of a vengeance from God if they continue to do evil. This is, not a holy, this is not a holy dread. This is not a righteous fear that motivates one to holy living. No, this is simply a warning against those who remain in unrepentant rebellion against God. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. See, the evildoer cannot ultimately flee the presence of God. He may live his life without all his life, all his days in complete disregard toward God's holy character and presence and his rule. But he cannot escape his face. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. See, if you can't, one of the great comforts we have, guys, is that we are able to live life in the presence of God. We are, come, we are able to come here, as it were, and be in the presence of his face and not perish. We come here together, and mo- most of us don't even give it a second thought Sunday morning. We're like, yeah, we're going to church. We're going to sing songs. We're going to hear the word preached, and we're going to hear the word preached some more, and then we're going to do communion. It's going to be a great time, right? Most of us don't even come here thinking, I am going to the face of God. I hope I don't die. <laughs> But in some sense, we're, because we are under grace, we don't, have to, we don't have to think about that. We don't live in terror of condemnation before God. But sometimes it helps us to think about that, that when we are here together, there should be a humble sense of holy dread. Remember the knowledge that God can and will take you out if you continue in wickedness. If you continue in unrighteousness, the warning is very real. But as for those who know and love God, we can come before his face together, knowing that his eyes see us, his ears attend to us, and in that we can take great comfort and joy. But you are here today and who are not right with God and continue to live in unrepentant unbelief and wickedness, this is the warning that God is against you. And it's a hard thing to say. It's an uncomfortable truth. But if you do not believe in Jesus Christ, if he is not the propitiation for your sins, God is against you. And the call to repentance is to say, turn from your sin and let the face of God be against you no longer. Let his grace be upon you. Turn to him in faith and do evil no longer. Trust in Christ and walk with him. Right? God faces everyone. That's the truth of this verse. God faces everyone. You may have your face turned from him, but he faces you always. And that's the, that's the great warning. You think about this. I was reminded by this uh, from a brother earlier. The fact that Goliath was against David, but Goliath's problem wasn't that David was against him. Goliath's problem was that God was against Goliath. And Goliath lost his head to a shepherd boy with a stick and five rocks. That's what it means for God to be against someone. And he can use any means necessary to execute his judgment on those who do not turn to him, who do not trust him, who do not submit to his rule and his grace. So that's the warning. That is the warning for those who desire to live a blessed life now, looking forward to all of God's promises in Christ being fulfilled. Let that encourage you this morning and walk thusly, knowing that the life and love and good days we have in Christ are sure and they are good. And by his faithfulness, he will see us through to the end. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your love and goodness to us. We thank you for this text and all of the, uh, the solid instruction it gives us warns us to turn from evil, warns us what happens if we do not. But Lord, there's also instruction for our hearts to those who in Christ experience life, love, and good days, all good things, but things that we abuse, Lord, but things that you still give us in amazing fashion. I pray that we would humble ourselves before you, 
to see those three things and how Christ has made them so much richer, so much more precious, so much more potent, and that those things are offered to us as a gift of your grace and mercy. And I pray, Lord, if there's anyone in here who does not know you, who does who has not turned away from evil or who's even in their own in their own sight has turned away from evil but is not trusting you. I pray that you would rid them of pride, of their self-sufficiency, put in them a desire to follow you, implant in their hearts a genuine faith in your son and a and a joyous realization that they have been born again. Um, Lord, we want this to be true of us. We want uh, we want to experience life and and, and, and to see many good days ahead because of what you've done for us, that we can anticipate them, uh, even in spite of everything we see going on, that is no reason to, to remain in unbelief. It is no reason to think that somehow you are not able to bring many good things ahead, to bring a fruit to uh, the ministry of this church. We want to, Lord, anticipate good things. And you have promised us so. And so we can rest in that promise. So in light of that, we praise you, we worship you, and may this song be true of the condition of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.